I'm Tracy Sable tonight on EWTN News Nightly. The results are in. Analysis and reaction of last night's Republican primary in New Hampshire. Deal or no deal? Congress struggles between granting aid to Ukraine and U.S. border security. We're on Capitol Hill. Striking back. The U.S. retaliates against an Iranian-backed militia after drone attacks on American troops. We have the latest. And you can't take it with you. Pope Francis reveals a simple cure for one of the seven deadly sins. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Francis de Sales. Our top story tonight, former President Donald Trump secures victory in the New Hampshire primary. He is the first Republican to win the opening races in both Iowa and New Hampshire since 1976. Thank you very much. We love you. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. We'll see you on the trail. Meanwhile, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley says the race is far from over and she will stay in the running. The Haley campaign will turn its eyes to South Carolina, the primary there next month, a state where she served as governor. On the Democratic side, President Joe Biden won his party's primary through a write-in effort, making a rematch of 2020 all the more likely. And joining us now live from Manchester, New Hampshire, is Philip Crowler, international affiliate correspondent for the Associated Press. Philip, great to see you again. So does this look like the Republican primary season is over so soon after it begun? And is former President Donald Trump the inevitable nominee? Well, it certainly looks and feels that way, doesn't it? There are still a lot of delegates to be collected uh, by the eventual nominee, meaning that there's still a long time until we'll be able to officially, 100% officially, say who the Republican nominee is going to be. But there's a lot of momentum, that key word in politics. There's a lot of that uh, with former President Donald Trump uh, after winning Iowa with uh, just over 50%, winning here in New Hampshire also with over 50%. Uh, that is quite significant, with a margin of around 11% between former President Trump and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. That is also pretty much exactly what the Trump campaign would have wanted. From them, there are now increasing calls, though not necessarily from the candidate himself, for Nikki Haley to drop out of the race. She's not doing that yet, but really this is a Trump campaign that wants to move on, that wants to pivot toward the general election against President Joe Biden. Well, Philip, I want you to listen to the soundbite here from Nikki Haley following the announcement of the result. Now, you've all heard the chatter among the political class. They're falling all over themselves, saying this race is over. Well, I have news for all of them. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. This race is far from over. Well, Philip, obviously she thinks this race is far from over. Do you think it is? And where does her campaign go from here? I'll tell you what, her tone was quite surprising to us, and certainly it was to Donald Trump himself as well. He was not just surprised by it, he was angered by it, uh, that she made this look like a victory night for her. That certainly was the view of Donald Trump wasn't a happy man last night despite his victory. So what Nikki Haley now is doing is she's essentially saying that she will stay in the race 
for another month at least, because that is when the South Carolina primary takes place. That's her home state. That is where she was the governor. But it is also the state where she is lagging behind again in the polls uh, to, uh, when you compare her to Donald Trump. He is the, very much the favorite in South Carolina as well. Another thing that is not working out for Nikki Haley in her home state is that most of the high-ranking elected officials, well, they have already endorsed Donald Trump. And in, in fact, there are more and more of the big hitters in Republican politics who are now in line with Donald Trump and who are now endorsing him. Still, though, she has organized quite a few rallies in South Carolina this week. She has released new adverts for TV. She says she's staying in this race for another month, and then maybe if it goes well, all the way till Super Tuesday. But remember that a month is a very long time in U.S. politics. A lot could go wrong and indeed could go right for her during the next four weeks. Philip, we have about 30 seconds left or so, but quickly, I know this is not your first go-around. You've covered primaries in New Hampshire before. Uh, that being said, what stuck out the most to you this time around? I'll tell you what, what's different really is that this feels like a foregone conclusion uh, that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. I remember 12 years ago being here in this exact same spot in Manchester and there were election night parties all down Elm Street that you see here behind me because there were so many Republican candidates in the race. I think there might have been eight or nine. Now we're essentially, we were left yesterday with two viable candidates. That really is what's different. And why is that the case? Well, because the grip that Donald Trump has on the Republican Party is so noteworthy, not just here in New Hampshire, but essentially nationally as well. All right, Bill, thank you so much. Live for us in Manchester, New Hampshire tonight. Well, on the day after the New Hampshire primary, President Joe Biden makes an appeal to union workers gathered in Washington, D.C. He was the keynote speaker at a United Auto Workers political convention. President Biden routinely praises unions for building the middle class, and now he is looking for their vote. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen? That's, that's right, Tracy. He's looking for their support at the ballot box. And today, President Joe Biden also got the UAW's endorsement in his re-election bid for November. He told an energized crowd his often repeated line, unions built the middle class. President Joe Biden takes to the stage trying to convince blue-collar workers he's their guy for four more years. It's great to be home. One of the best unions in the world. You look out for one another. The union closing out a three-day gathering in Washington to chart its political priorities. At this week's conference, support for Biden among union members has varied from enthusiastic to uncertainty about whether to even vote come election day. Because I strongly believe that companies transitioning to new technology should retool reboot and rehire in the same factories, in the same communities with comparable wages. President Biden's speech coming just a day after he addressed a pro-abortion crowd in Manassas, Virginia. His remarks interrupted by protesters multiple times over Israel's war in Gaza. Jill and I had a chance to sit down. The 
The protesters escorted out one by one and asked whether the president is bracing for protests at more public events like last night. In the White House briefing room, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters. The president believes that Americans have the right to speak out, make their voice heard, uh, as long as they do it peacefully. And so we, res we respect that. And as the 2024 campaign season unfolds, with the former president in a very strong position to be the GOP nominee, President Biden fires off this attack. It is now clear that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. And my message to the country is the stakes could not be higher. Our democracy, our personal freedoms, from the right to choose to the right to vote, our economy, which has seen the strongest recovery in the world since COVID, all are at stake. And just like last night, the president's speech today interrupted by war protesters. Meanwhile, President Biden heads to Wisconsin tomorrow talking Bidenomics. In 2020, in the Badger State, in the presidential election, Biden narrowly defeated Donald Trump. And in 2016 in Wisconsin, in the presidential race, Donald Trump just edged out Hillary Clinton. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. Well, the U.S. is out of money for Ukraine, unable to send the ammunition and missiles that the government in Kyiv wants unless Congress acts fast. That is not even going to start this week. Both sides are drawing lines in the sand even before negotiations on a foreign aid package, including border security, are wrapped up. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales has the latest. Good evening, Tracy. For the first time, the Biden administration came empty-handed as it hosted a monthly meeting for about 50 nations that coordinate support for Ukraine. Meanwhile, up here on Capitol Hill, Senate negotiators continue to drudge through the slow process of drafting a bill to fund border security, aid to Ukraine and Israel, along with humanitarian assistance to Palestinians. Now this work is not easy. In fact, it's one of the hardest things the Senate has undertaken but also one of the most important. This is a situation that cries out for American leadership, not only protecting our own border, but helping our allies abroad. The bill would provide about $110 billion in aid to Ukraine and Israel, as well as overhauling the U.S. immigration system. Several Republicans say they have yet to see the language, but add they can't trust the Biden administration will even implement new border provisions. I'm just not convinced some language change uh, you're going to have a come-to-Jesus moment with Joe Biden to somehow enforce border laws. Let's get it all out in the open. Let's get the text out there. Let people have a point of view. Republicans say constituents simply don't care for sending more money to Ukraine. They care about securing America's own border along with high inflation. Senator Tommy Tuberville tells me tying more Ukraine money to the border is something he won't support. We should do Taiwan, Ukraine, and Israel all different. Uh, and But they want to tie it into one where they can make sure that they they get the vote that they want. But it shouldn't be that way. Senator Angus King, a Maine independent, warns that not providing any aid to Ukraine would hurt the U.S. for generations. We've got to talk about Ukraine, though. If we don't do Ukraine aid, it will be a geopolitical mistake that will haunt this country for 50 years. And what if hardline conservatives in the House object to the Senate pass deal? And if House Republicans refuse to take it up, to consider it and pass it, then they will own responsibility for another year in which millions of people um, suffer the journey of coming to our southern border uh, only to be either turned away or ultimately deported. The future of foreign aid and a border package is still very much up in the air. Senate Republicans are having a closed-door meeting today about Ukraine aid. Support for Ukraine is losing popularity among GOP lawmakers, especially over in the House. And some Democrats want conditions of any money sent to Israel. 
at the Capitol. Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. Now to the war in Ukraine, where 74 people are dead after a Russian military transport plane was shot down, and the Kremlin is placing blame on Ukraine. Russia says the dead include 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war who were traveling to be a part of a prisoner exchange. Russian military says the radar detected the launch of two missiles that brought the plane down. Ukrainian officials did not immediately confirm nor deny the claims. Now to the war between Israel and Hamas, where the State Department has condemned an attack on a United Nations training center in southern Gaza. The UN reports that there are mass casualties after two Israeli tank rounds hit the facility, starting a fire. Health officials also say people tried to flee but were unable to do so. Israeli military officials have not directly addressed the attack, but released a statement describing the area as a base for Hamas fighters. Well, the U.S. launched attacks on three facilities in Iraq on Tuesday used by Iranian-backed militia groups. According to Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, that is, Lloyd Austin, the strikes were in direct response to, quote, a series of escalatory attacks against U.S. and coalition personnel in Iraq and Syria by Iranian-sponsored militias. On Monday, two ships with U.S. flags carrying cargo for the defense and state departments came under attack off of Yemen. Suspicion immediately fell on Houthi rebels. The attacks further raised tensions in an area that has seen several strikes on container vessels. And for analysis, we go now to Colonel Eric Buer, retired Marine Corps aviator and author of the book Ghosts of Baghdad. Colonel, thank you for your time and thank you for your service. We appreciate it. A lot to get to, but first, what more do you know about the attack on the targets in Iraq? Any idea what was housed in those facilities? Yeah, they're really keeping that close hold right now. Um, you can just imagine there are going to be supply facilities, logistical facilities that will include weapons and and other types of kind of essentials uh, for conducting those type of, type of operations. But it's nothing new. The, the, could, the commanders uh, there are going to continue to put pressure on U.S. forces in Syria and throughout Iraq uh, to force our hand uh, see if we can make mistakes uh, defending our, our troops over there. Yeah, I, I want to talk now uh, about the Houthis. Um, about a week ago, they were given the designation by the State Department as a specially designated global terrorist group. Tell us more about them and these attacks that they have been launching against maritime vessels and military forces in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Houthi leadership now under Abdul, uh, the, uh, the, the younger brother of Hussein, the founder, they've been getting more and more radical uh, since their founding in 1992. And uh, clearly, uh, their civil war they're facing, facing right now with uh, the government of, of Yemen uh, has put a lot of pressure and a lot of eyes on them. Uh, they are a Russian, they are both a Russian and a, a clearly an Iranian proxy. And so when they, when they execute those type of missions that are going to attempt to uh, really destroy ships uh, that'll, that'll affect any freedom of navigation, uh, they're putting themselves really at risk. They're, I mean, they're a relatively small uh, organization, about 200,000 expected. Uh, but when you begin shooting rockets, uh, both ballistic rockets, shooting and uh, other guided rockets and, and drones uh, into international waters, you're opening yourself up for really a global response. And that's what we've seen from from the uh, from the Brits, from ourselves, and from other uh, European and, and regional allies. Yeah, what's the goal here for the Houthis? I mean, what's their end game? Their end game is to take over the government of, of Yemen, right? They're a Shia based. Uh, uh, their intent is to go back to where they were several years ago, into the capital, uh, assume power 
uh, and uh, continue on with their 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 end game. You, you, they're they're a very destructive organization. And clearly, if you look at their charter, it's anti-U.S., it's anti-Israel, it's it's anti a lot of things. Clearly, anti um, Saudi Arabia. But uh, they're going to be marginalized more and more. I think the, the, the more they show themselves as a target and as a clear proxy of the Iranians, the more they open themselves up to the world, uh, not just the U.S., but all of the allies and regional allies saying we've had enough and put and put them down. Yeah, Colonel, you mentioned, I mean, they're a proxy of Iran. They're being backed by Iran. That being said, are we in a proxy war right now with Tehran? And where do you see this all going? I think we're clearly we've been in a proxy war. You see that um, the fingerprints of all the trained Hamas fighters in Gaza. Uh, you see Hezbollah is on the ground in Yemen. Uh, the Iranian, uh, the Iranian Islamic Republican Guard are there, along with uh, Hezbollah fighters in Yemen. Uh, it's what the Iranians have always said they wanted to do. Um, again, they want to become the regional hegemon. Uh, they're Shia-based. Uh, their natural enemy of, of or their natural enemy of the Saudis, which of course are allies of us. Uh, it puts everything clearly back onto the Iranians. The Iranians have to figure out, you know, what is very realistic for them politically, militarily. You see, this is the best they can do right now is use a series of proxies, uh, both in Yemen, both in Lebanon, and you, certainly we see it uh, clearly in the in the, in the current fight between Israel and Hamas. Okay, Colonel Bure, thank you so much for your time and your insights. We appreciate it. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including still in the running. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. After her loss in New Hampshire's primary GOP presidential hopeful Nikki Haley turns her attention toward her home state. And Greece moves forward with plans to legalize same-sex marriage, how faith leaders are responding. Lawmakers in Ohio have voted to override the governor's veto of a ban on gender surgeries for minors. The legislation also bans biological boys from playing on girls' sports teams in grade school, high school, and in college. The measure will take effect in about three months. As we mentioned earlier in the newscast, GOP candidate Nikki Haley is turning her attention to South Carolina. The first primary in a southern state takes place on February 24th. Haley is a South Carolina South Carolina native and later was governor of the Palmetto State. She heads there, having finished third in Iowa and second in New Hampshire. Her opponent, former President Donald Trump, has received several key endorsements from South Carolina officials, including Senator Tim Scott. And for analysis, let's turn now to Manny Ukabarua, member of the editorial board at The Wall Street Journal. Manny, great to have you back. Uh, so set the stage for us. How big is the South Carolina primary? And how do you think it will help or hurt Haley that voters there, you know, are already familiar with her? Sure. Well, if Nikki Haley has any chance of contesting the Republican primary process against Donald Trump, it's going to be made or broken in South Carolina. As you mentioned, that's her home state, uh, where she has very, very high name oh, recognition. Exactly. As of today, she's already pouring millions of dollars into a large-scale ad campaign, has several weeks to prepare to make her case against Donald Trump there. And so she really has to win that state uh, in order to show uh, primary voters in subsequent states that 
there really is a contest going on here that some people are looking for an alternative and see if she can continue the fight onto the convention. Manny, how much uh, could it help former President Donald Trump that he's already received endorsements from both South Carolina Senators Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham, plus the state's current governor? Well, I think it needs to be made clear that Donald Trump didn't require the endorsements of any politician to rack up a large lead in South Carolina. It's a deeply conservative state. It voted for him by large margins in both 2016 and 2020. He's very popular there and appeals to the Republican Party base there. But it definitely does help, I think, to be able to say that all of these other politicians from this state are already on board with his campaign. Um, he's trying to argue that Nikki Haley is only still in the contest because of her own vanity, but the Republican Party has made its decision, um, and pointing to those endorsements as well as the polls helps him to get that point across. Yeah, and the primary in South Carolina, it's considered an open primary. For those that don't know what that means, tell us more about that, and, and could it lead to Democrats casting a vote in the Republican race? Yes. So there are several different structures of primary across different states. Some have ones where it's very narrowly constricted to people who have a pre-existing registration with that party. So only registered Republicans would be able to vote. Um, and then there are open ones, which includes New Hampshire and, as you said, South Carolina, where it's made fairly easy for voters to switch their registration um, and be able to vote in the Republican primary. So independents can vote in it. Even Democrats who change their registration can vote in it. And that's seen as something that could help Nikki Haley because she appeals to a more moderate part of the Republican Party base. And so she'll be making her pitch to a lot of moderate suburbanites in South Carolina to come out and vote for her and see if they can help her stay in this competition against Donald Trump. Yeah. And she says that, you know, she plans to remain in the contest at least until Super Tuesday in early March. Is that a wise strategy? And how important is South Carolina for her? Well, I think it's a wise strategy to express optimism about how far she can go and how well she'll perform in South Carolina. Obviously, the voters who support her don't want to hear her saying that uh, it's all over or suggesting that there, she has an insurmountable um, climb to come back against Donald Trump. Uh, so I think that she's uh, basically talking tough and saying that she knows she's going to roll into Super Tuesday. In reality, if she doesn't manage to win her own home state of South Carolina, it will be very hard for her to make the case that she has any ability to come back, and it will be very hard for her to continue to raise money. So I would expect it would be possible that, in fact, she would drop out if she isn't able to pull off the comeback win. All right, we're going to leave right there. Minnie, great to be with you as always. Thank you for your insights. Thanks very much, Tracy. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, message from the heart. Pope Francis issues a warning about artificial intelligence. Plus, the Holy Father says greed is not just about our wallets. We'll explain. Welcome back. We have some sad news to pass along tonight. Father Elias Lades, the founder of EWTN Low Countries, has died. Father Elias was a member of the community of St. John. He worked all over Europe, including in Lithuania and Russia. Father Elias was 65 years old. We ask that you keep him and his family and friends in your thoughts and in your prayers. Our leaders of the Greek Orthodox Church are speaking out against the government's plans to legalize same-sex marriage. Still, the center-right government is proceeding with a proposal. 
The country's prime minister says the measure would provide more, quote, social equity, adding that it would grant additional rights to some without taking away from the majority. Greece would become the first majority Orthodox country to legalize same-sex marriage. In expressing opposition, the Greek Orthodox Church said in part, quote, marriage is the union of man and woman under Christ, and the church does not accept the cohabitation of its members in any form other than marriage. Paul Francis reminds the faithful that artificial intelligence can never replace the wisdom of the human heart. In his message for the World Day of Social Communications, the Holy Father says information cannot be separated from living relationships, and he warned against becoming rich in technology and poor in humanity. Well, finally tonight, Pope Francis says greed is a sickness of the heart and not of the wallet. Siamo attenti e siamo generosi. Generosi. At his weekly talk at the Vatican, the Holy Father underlined death is an effective reminder that we must be generous with our goods because we cannot take our money with us. He added that the need to accumulate goods leads to a distorted relationship with reality. Now we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook X and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless. Thank you.